For this is God's word to you, because he is your father. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to uh, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in uh, Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of that place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would, be, uh, you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac, showed, uh, and Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dung, uh, dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had uh, been dug in the day of, days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar uh, quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, and he called its name, its name Sitna. And he moved uh, from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name uh, Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you. And will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And uh, there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzeth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of the army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be sworn a pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you may do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done you nothing but good and sent you away in peace. 
you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Shabbat. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Besamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is filled with stories and of real people, of real families, We ask that you would teach us and that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds, that would bring light into our own lives, our own hearts, that you would show us the things that you want to teach us. So we invite you to be our teacher now. And uh, we thank you for your word and ask for your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. So um, we are looking this uh, this morning an interesting story. It's... uh, this is, uh, in, in the, this cycle that we're looking at of kind of about Jacob, this is the one story in Genesis that's really about Isaac as a man on, standing on his own. You know, all the other stories about Isaac are kind of about Abraham and Isaac. It's really about Abraham, but Isaac's kind of a side player. It's about Jacob and Isaac's kind of a side player. Here's the one story where it's just about Isaac. And uh, what's interesting, though, is if, if you've, been with us the last couple of years as we've been looking through Genesis, or you know the book of Genesis at all, is this story that I just read to you is, sounds familiar, <laughs> where uh, Isaac goes uh, into this foreign land, and uh, there's a king there, and he's got a beautiful wife, and he's afraid that all the men there are going to want the beautiful wife, so he makes up this lie that, uh, that it's not really his wife, it's his sister, and so that they won't kill him. And uh, if you've read the book of Genesis, you know that this exact same thing happened in Genesis 12. Abraham, his father, did the exact same thing. He went into a land, uh, into Egypt, and uh, he was afraid of Pharaoh and the men there, and so he lied and said Sarah was his sister. And then again in, in, uh, in uh, Genesis 20, he went into the same uh, town, the same city, Gerar, the same region, and went to the same king and said, uh, listen, she's, uh, Sarah's my sister, she's not my wife, out of fear. And um, what's happening here is that um, Isaac is playing out the story of his father. The same patterns, the same uh, ways that his father deals with fear, deals with insecurity, these same patterns are showing up in Isaac's life, and he's repeating them. He's looking just like Abraham, and particularly, he's looking just like Abraham in Abraham's sin. And, uh, you know, actually, after this episode about the lying, it even says, in verse 18, it says this, uh, And Isaac uh, dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave uh, them the names that his father Abraham had given them. Isaac is retracing his father's life. The way his father lived, he is following that same path. And actually, Abraham's name appears eight times in this passage. And uh, the, na- the word father appears six times in this passage. And often this, Abraham, his father. Abraham, his father, is shaping his life. And um, the Bible is very clear, which I think many of us can just observe in the world, that our lives are deeply connected to the lives of our parents. 
There's what's called a covenant relationship that um, in many ways, uh, who we are is shaped by who our parents are. That's actually what it says in Genesis 5, that uh, uh, Adam had Seth, and Seth was made in his likeness. He's look, he, he was just like him. We look like our parents. And it's not just that we look like them physically, that, you know, our facial features, but we also look by, like our parents in how we uh, live in the world emotionally, how uh, um, uh, our, our gifts, our personalities look like them. And um, I know that for some of you, that's a troubling reality. Um, it's uh, because we all come from sinful families, right? We come from broken families. We're all sinners. Our parents are all sinners. All of us as parents are sinners. And we all come from that setting. And the, the reason God made this kind of connection with our parents is because it's supposed to be that our parents kind of share with us their glory, you know, their wisdom. And, they, and that often happens as well, that, uh, that who they are, all the good things about them, they share with us. And we get their personality and we get those things free. But we also get their sinfulness. And what this is called is this is called generational sin. There are certain kinds of sins, certain kinds of habits, certain kinds of patterns that get passed down through the lines of generations and they get repeated over and over again. And the way that the Bible kind of describes this is that God says that the, that the sins of the fathers are on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This repeating of sins. And I, you know, I know for, for some of you, you say, you know, I, I grew up in a family, I, I, I wasn't loved. I didn't see a model of, of what a Christ-centered life is, the fruit of the Spirit. I didn't see that in my family. And, uh, and um, I had parents who had all kinds of uh, sinful behaviors, patterns in their life, and that's all I've ever known. I grew up seeing my parents' sinful patterns, and that's all I've ever known. And, um, and in some sense, there's a, there's a sense where we can feel robbed by that that there's this injustice to it. Because we say, you know, I didn't pick my family. I didn't, I, didn't, it was, I didn't have a choice to get put in that family. And yet, it was just put on me. And, um, and the difficult um, reality is that uh, that may feel unjust. And we say, how could the Bible say that, that this, the sins of the parents are on the children of the third and fourth generation? But all we can say about that is that we look at our world, and that's the way our world is. Our world is that way. We see that in our own lives. We see that in, in, uh, in other people's lives, that the sins of our parents are, are put upon us. And, but the good news is that we're reading a passage today about God bringing his promises into a family just like that. Here's Isaac living out his father's patterns, and here's God stepping into a family like that and speaking his promises to us. And what the reality that we see in this, in this passage is that we feel like uh, the, the things that we learn, the patterns that we learn in our parents are so strong, we can't break out of them. We feel like they, they've predetermined our life. They've predetermined our personality and what we're like. And yet we read in this passage that the promises of God are stronger than the sins of our parents, than generational sins. The promises of God are stronger. And so what we're going to do is we look at this passage, we're going to look at two things of, first of all, where do generational sins show, where does generational sins show themselves in our lives? Where does generational sin show itself? Where does it pop up? How can we recognize it? What are the things to look for? How do we be on guard for them? And understand where these things might be in our lives and our families. And second, does the gospel give us any hope in them? 
You know, we didn't have any choice being put into our families. Is there any hope out? What do the promises of God say? So we're going to look at those two realities, and um, I, hope it's, I hope it's helpful for you. Um, but uh, before we look at those two things, I, I need to make an aside here. Uh, this, it's, this may feel unrelated to this passage, but um, there, I, before I jump into those two things, I want to just address one question of the issue that this story is appears three times in the book of Genesis. So I just mentioned that Abraham went into Egypt, and he said, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And then he does it in Genesis 20. Oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And then Isaac does it in Genesis 26. Oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And many scholars have said, you know what, the reason there's three of these stories is because uh, actually these were passed down by oral tradition. And as the oral tradition got passed down, the stories kind of changed over time until there actually turned out to be three different stories. But they all really come back to one story, but, you know, whoever put together Genesis, they kind of just were taping together stories, and there was three of them. And, uh, and that's really why we have three of them. It's not because there was something that was repeating in this family, but there was three of them. And, and some of you may have encountered that if, you, uh, if you've taken a religion class at Western or uh, in college, and you might say, uh, what's the answer to that? Well, the answer to this is uh, what they're talking about is something called the documentary hypothesis. And I'm just going to spend a few words on this because I won't get to this in other places in Genesis. So I'm just going to take a minute on this. The documentary hypothesis, which says that the Bible was written by Genesis, for example, was written by a bunch of different authors in different centuries. And someone just taped together different parts of Genesis. And they really don't, they're not really from one author. And that's why we have these doublets of these two stories. But... Um, Three reasons why I think these stories were written by Moses and put here by Moses by one author. One first reason is that an increasing number of scholars say that there are many differences from these three stories that give us clues that these are not from a single source. That they're not, uh, uh, these are three distinct stories. They're three di they even have genre differences to them. Uh, second, I just want to point this out about this passage. If you have the passage before you, you notice in verse 1, this is what it says. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. That's referring back to Genesis 12 when there was a famine. And, a and then Abraham went down to Egypt and he went and told Pharaoh, uh, no, she's not my wife, she's my sister. So this author is saying, listen, what happened back then happened again. So the story is trying to tell us that this is something that repeated in this family. Um, and, uh, and thirdly, uh, and I think this relates to our sermon, is that in the Bible, when biblical authors repeat a story, it tells you that there's something important happening. So if you read the book of Acts, for example, the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion is repeated three times throughout the book of Acts. And you know, back in the, back in the day, they didn't have a lot of parchment paper, so you don't repeat stories unless you really need to because you don't have a lot of space to write it on. So if you're going to repeat a story, it better be something important. And so that happens in the book of Acts. No one questions that all three of those accounts were, written, were put together by Luke. Uh, the same is, is true here. These three stories were put together for, by Moses because he wanted to see that here's a family, here's a Christian family, uh, Abraham and Isaac, you know, these are families that believe in God, and yet they have a pattern of sin that is being passed down even through the patriarchs. And so if that's true even for the patriarchs, who are God's chosen ones, that's going to be true for us. So we, there's something important for us to look at in this passage. So uh, I think we can be confident that this is God's word to us, and these are events that really did happen. So... What do they have to say to us? First question. Where 
does generational sin show itself in our lives? Uh, where should we look for it in our, lo- uh, our own lives? How can we anticipate it? I think the first place that generational sin shows itself is in the midst of turmoil. When turmoil begins to happen in our life, uh, these patterns from our families begin to show themselves. And you can see this uh, first here in verse 1 where it says, Now there was a famine in the land. Questions of security of, am I going to have food? Is my family going to be provided for? Uh, What's the future? Are we going to be fed? Um, I don't know what's happening. There's unrest that is happening here. And it's in that time where we have questions about the future that uh, we feel unsettled. And it's during those times that certain patterns of dealing with that unrest and that turmoil that uh, how our family has dealt with those things will begin to show themselves, you know. And I, I know that uh, many of us here, we have young families uh, in our church. And, and someone just told me uh, a year ago or so that, that the 30s um, are a grind. Um, and maybe every decade is a grind, but the, uh, I, I, think it was, I think it was Chris Jorgensen told me this. And he said, you know, when you're in your 30s, you're, you're forming your family, you're, you're figuring out uh, marriage, uh, you're having children, uh, you're trying to get your career going, you're trying to get it started, and there's all kinds of things that, um, how do I do this? There's so much change and transition that's happening, and it's during that grind, during that tension, that uh, all kinds of things of how am I going to deal with this turmoil? begin to be stirred up, and they begin to show themselves in our lives. And we should be prepared that it's in the stress and the tension of that that we're going to f- have certain patterns that we've learned uh, to deal with that. And, you know, actually, you see that it's in a similar setting that Isaac is dealing with here that a- Abraham was, because it said in verse 1, now there's a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. He's saying, look, it, Isaac's father had a similar situation he was dealing with. And remember how Abraham dealt with it. He, he, went, he ran away from the promised land. He went down to Egypt to find help. And then he lied about his wife. And, uh, and, and the author is preparing us to say, Isaac is now in a similar sense of turmoil that his father was in. And um, there are patterns that our families taught us about how to respond to these turmoil. What are they? What are those patterns? And um, that's something to watch ourselves about. And, you know, um, I I think this is one of the purposes that that, uh, uh, Moses has in writing this portion of Genesis. You know, Genesis, I I don't know if you know this, Genesis did not just float down out of the sky on like a cloud in a golden book. Uh, That's not where Genesis came from. Genesis was a pastoral uh, story or letter that Moses wrote uh, to the Israelites. You you know the story uh, of the Exodus where they're slaves in Egypt and uh, God delivers them out of slavery um, through the Red Sea and then they go into the the wilderness and they spend 40 years in the wilderness. And you remember what happens there? The first generation of, of Israelites in the wilderness begin grumbling at God and complaining at God and they don't trust God and they don't believe him. They say, we want to go back into slavery. We want to, life was way better when we were slaves of Pharaoh. And God says, all right, you know what? If you don't trust in me, you're not going to go into the promised land. Your children are going to go into the promised land. And Genesis was written to those children. Abraham was writing a story and saying to them, look at what your your fathers, look at how they dealt with their turmoil, with being in the wilderness. They didn't trust God. And, And Abraham is now, or Moses is now saying to those people, are you going to follow the same pattern? Are you going to follow the same pattern as your parents? That's the whole point of the book of Genesis, was written to that community. This is the God that you're putting your trust in. And, um, and so that's the question 
that is put to them, will you act like your fathers, will you trust God instead, is, is something different going to happen? So first, it's in the midst of turmoil that, that generational sin uh, shows itself. But second, generational sin comes in the midst of fear. Because there's turmoil, that stirs up fear. It's when fear is beginning to grab hold of our life that these patterns will begin to show themselves. And, uh, you know... Um, as Isaac uh, is running away from this famine, he's fearful about this famine, uh, he ends up settling in this region uh, just south of the Promised Land, kind of southwest, called Gerar. And it says this in verse 7. He comes to this new land. He's in a foreign country. He's uncomfortable there. He doesn't know how, what's going to happen. And it says in verse 7, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say, my wife thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. And the clue there is that word he feared. And we, if you look down at verse uh, 24, later will God, God will command him to say, Fear not, for I am with you. And in this context, um, Isaac is afraid for his safety. He's afraid for his health. He's afraid for his future. He's in a context he's uncomfortable. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. And uh, instead of trusting God, Leaning on God's promises, he tries to take control of the situation. He be, decides to, well, what did my dad do in this situation? <laughs> my dad was in this situation. He was in a foreign land. He was running away from a famine. And he made up this lie. That's what I learned. So he plans this deception. And, um, and I think uh, to un well, one of the things to understand is that the reason that sin shows up in our life, you know, we have kind of these surface sins of where, you know, maybe we're manipulative with people, or maybe we're aggressive with people, or maybe uh, we're materialistic, or we're greedy, or maybe we lie to people and we put on a show for people. And one of the things to understand is that these are really su uh, surface sins, and that there's a sin underneath all of those sins, and the sin underneath the sin is that we really don't trust that God will provide for us, that God will take care of us. And when we don't believe that God will take care of us, we have to take our life into our own hands, we have to take control of it. And that's when we begin to do things like what Isaac is doing here. And, you know, uh, the, uh, it, it turns out that his fears were totally unfounded. Not only had God just told him, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you offspring in this land. God's given him all these promises. But um, it says here in verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Isaac lived in this land. There was no threat. No one was hurting him. No one was trying to kill him. No one was trying to steal his wife away. <laughs> he had all these things about what was going to happen in the future that were totally unfounded. They weren't true. It's in the context of that fear um, that um, our families have patterns of how do we deal with those fears. And I'll tell you, you know, generally people kind of put the, the responses to fear into kind of two categories of, of either fight or flight. Um, when we're afraid, we either become confrontational and we, uh, we try to grab control uh, of a situation and use our, um, our strength to make a situation do what we want, or we retreat and we run away from fears. And we, and, and we say, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to isolate myself. And I'm not going to be a part of it. And this is a question for us to ask as, um, as we look at the, the ways that we relate with people, what are the patterns that we've adopted, that we've inherited? Are we aware of them? 
And I think one of the questions to ask is, have you ever talked through that with anyone? I mean, if you're married, have you ever talked through that with your spouse? Um, of how, What patterns do I see repeated in myself? Have you ever talked that with your home group or anyone in church? Um, has that ever been, how is this playing out in my own life now, especially as I face turmoil and, and, uh, and fears? And um, how have I brought these patterns into my own family? And I'll tell you why that's a particularly important question is because of the third place that generational sin uh, shows up in our life is it comes in the midst of marriage. Marriage is a particular place where the patterns of our families begin to emerge where we didn't see them before. They, we never saw them before. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we get married and new things begin to come out. And, uh, you know, that's the context here is that uh, um, Isaac's dealing with, uh, he's got a wife um, who he's got to care for. They're in a foreign land. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And he begins to act out in these uh, certain ways and be deceptive. And... Um, all of a sudden, when we become married and when we marry someone, new things appear in them that we didn't see before, and new things appear in us that we didn't see before. You know, I, maybe I've told you this story when Shannon and I first got married. Uh, we were unpacking our uh, wedding presents, and, um, you know, we were putting things away, and she says to me, oh, that salad bowl there goes in that cupboard right there. And all of a sudden, I said, don't tell me where the salad bowl goes, you know. And she said, what? Like, don't, where the salad bowl? I didn't know you cared where the salad bowl went. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, you have a new concern about organizing the kitchen and the salad bowl. And, you know, what, what was happening there is, as you know, I, when I was a, a young kid, I had a friendship that was a very controlling friendship that was very hard for me growing up. And I, I have really in me a, a fear of being controlled. And all of a sudden, when I'm in the tight quarters of being in a family, uh, and all of a sudden, she's telling me where to put the salad bowl. It all of a sudden triggered me. Wait a second. I know what's going on here. Uh, this is another control situation. I have, this is my pattern for, for dealing with it is I'm going to be the one in control. And, uh, and that's what we bring into is we have, we have certain patterns, and marriage triggers them. Marriage brings them to the surface. And I'll tell you, a lot of people don't want to get married for that reason. <laughs> um, they're scared of marriage because I don't know what's going to show up when I'm in that situation, when I'm in that context. And I actually, let me, before I move on, you know, I think that those are things to face in marriage, but I think actually, uh, let me just say a few things um, to encourage you about why um, God lets us still get married, even though we have uh, family lines, we have certain patterns that we have learned that we're bringing into a marriage. Why still get married? Well, first of all, is that this pattern, this generational sin, these patterns that we bring into marriage, is true even in good marriages. That's true even in good marriages. And, I, you know, one of the most wonderful things about this passage is, you know, Isaac is making a major blunder. I mean, he's making his wife very vulnerable. He's lying to a king. He's making this whole uh, kingdom vulnerable because they might all, uh, you know, try to get with his wife and then they would all be adulterers or, you know, whoever. Uh, and so he's putting everyone else at risk by deceiving others and trying to protect himself. And yet there's this great verse in verse 8 where it says, And when they had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. This great picture is in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of all these patterns, in the midst of all these fears, Isaac is laughing with his wife. And actually, the word, it's the word playing. They're playing together. And uh, <laughs> intimately 
playing together, <laughs> I think. Uh, we don't know exactly what Abimelech saw or what he was doing, but um, it was clear to him these two are married. This is not brother and sister. There's a playfulness there. There's a joy. There's a, 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 a freedom. And even in the midst, they're, they're in, a, in a new land, in a new country. There's all kinds of fears. There's all kinds of turmoil. They're working through all kinds of things in their marriage. And yet it is still possible to have a playfulness, to have a joy as those things are being worked through. And that's one of the things that God does for us is he puts us in a marriage. And that's not the whole story. Is, um, one of the things is when we, you know, the Bible says that when you get married, you leave your father and mother and you... Uh, the man leaves his father money and clings to his wife. It's a new family. There's new hope. It's actually possible for there to be playfulness as you're working through all these things. And God knows that. And God acknowledges that. And we even see this in Isaac, who, uh, who turns out to be not the most faith, probably the least faithful of all the patriarchs. And, um, and so we might think that as we enter into marriage, that problems in our generational sin are going to be insurmountable, but that's not true. There's still playfulness. But also, um, this is one of the purposes of marriage. One of the reasons why we should still enter into marriage, even though it triggers and it brings up generational sin, is because this is one of the reasons that God made marriage, is that it's supposed to bring up, trigger things in us so that they can be dealt with and they can be washed and they can be cleansed. And, you know, that's true for many of you. Many of you have uh, maybe have long lines of broken uh, families, broken marriages, and God is doing something new in your marriage, in your family. He is transforming something. And all these things are going to be brought up. And you're going to say, why do I have to deal with all these things? Why do I have to face all these things? Why is this so hard? Why is this so difficult? It's because the, the line of unbelief, the line of sin in your family is being broken in you. Is being broken in your marriage. And it may hurt more for you, but it's going to hurt a lot less for your children. And so why do we face it? Why do we endure it? It's because God is, is doing something new in you. And so we should take hope in that. Okay, so um, these generational sins, they show up in turmoil, in the midst of fear, and then more specifically in the context of marriage. But uh, let me just say briefly also that generational sin uh, comes up in the midst of God's mission. And what I mean by that is it's amazing that God... The reason God has called us together as a church, why has he brought us all here, is so that we could be a light to the world. We show the world this is what God is like, um, is to love our neighbors, to show this is the goodness of God. And yet, look, we're all broken. <laughs> we have all kinds of sin. And what we see here um, with Isaac is that he's dealing with this king. And the king says, what have you done? Why did you do this? You put us all at risk. Why have you done this? And actually, uh, that phrase... Where, the, where Abimelech says to Isaac, what have you done? It's the same thing that God says to Adam in Genesis 3. After he eats of the fruit, he says, what have you done? And it's the same thing God says to Cain in Genesis 4 after he's murdered his brother, what have you done? And now God's saying that to Isaac, what have you done? And uh, what's happening is that Isaac's uh, generational sin, these sins that he's carrying, are making a bad name for God. And so God is bringing these things up so that we'd face them for his glory. So we have to ask the question, what hope is there? Many of these things we feel like they're in our bones, they're in my blood, they're in my brain, they're in my soul. I can't, not, I can't be different than how I was grown up to be. This is just who I am. This is my personality. Is there any hope for me, for me to be something different? And uh, let me give four bits of hope that we see in this passage, and I'll, I'll try to move through them quickly. 
Does the gospel give us any hope? Any hope about generational sin? Are our lives predetermined by what families we were born into? Or is there something different possible? Okay, four bits of hope. The first bit of hope is the promises of God. And what you see here is that Isaac, Isaac is in the promised land. There's a famine. He's feeling this turmoil, and he says, oh, there's a, there's a famine. And so actually Isaac begins to head towards, if you look at Gerar, Gerar is on the way to Egypt. He's on his way to Egypt. That's what my father did. He went to Egypt in, in the famine. That's what I'm going to do. And he's on his way, and God interrupts him. He stops him, and he begins to speak to him his promises. And he only makes it to Gerar because God speaks to him. And this is what, uh, this is what he says in, in verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I will show you. Sojourn in this land. And this is the great promise of the whole Bible. And this is the first time we hear it in the book of Genesis. And I will be with you. And will bless you. God makes a promise to Isaac. I will be with you. And um, the way that we are transformed, the way that the line of unbelief in our families is broken is by the promises of God beginning to define who we are, that God has promised to you, I will be with you. And uh, what happens is what happens in our past determines how we make decisions about the future. That's what Isaac did. He looked at his past. That's how my father handled famines. That's how I'm going to handle famines. How does my father handle foreign kings who want to take my wife? That's how, that's how I'm going to do it. And what God is doing is he's giving us a new past, a new identity with his promises, a new way to make decisions in our life. And so the promises of God kind of shape our identity. And so the first hope that we have is when we know God's promises to us, that he says, I will be with you. He says, I will give you, uh, uh, he's promised us his spirit to live in us, to, to make us loving. He's promised that I've planned good works for you. I've, I'll, I will forgive all your sins. Um, All of these things, I've given you a community, I've given you a people, you're my beloved children. He's poured his promises on us, and as we begin to internalize those things, those reshape what our identity is, and we become a a new person from the family that we came out of. But how how do those promises become internalized in us? How can those promises get down into our bones and into our souls? The second thing is we need to experience... The earthly provision of God. We need the earthly provision of God. Because, you know, when I say to you, what you need is the promises of God. You need to hear God say, I will be with you, and I will, I will be your God, and I will send you the Spirit. A lot of times that just sounds like words to us, right? These are just words. And you really think these words are really going to shape, transform my family and my history and my life. And uh, the reality is, is that we need to experience and taste God's blessing as well. And uh, you see this here with, in verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became wealthy. And uh, you know, this isn't a promise to us that if you become a Christian, you're going to become rich or anything like that. The Bible doesn't promise that. But what, it, what did happen was that this is one of the, the, the first times in Genesis where God makes a promise, and then he lets the patriarch experience that promise. It was real food, tangible food. He could taste it. It was real crops coming out. And what needs to happen for us is we can't, just, we can't just hear the promises of God. We need to experience them. And one of the ways that you tangibly experience the earthly provision of God is right here in this church. 
Here with these people, you're being loved. You have brothers and sisters. As, as we come to the Lord's table, as we eat at each other's table and we build friendships and we're loved, this is tangible provision of God saying to us, I love you, you're my child, I will provide for you. And it's when we experience that in this context that it really begins to internalize us that God really does love us. God really is with me. God is really not far off. His spirit really is at work. And I can begin to trust those things to make new decisions in my life. Okay? But the third... Um, way, the third hope that the gospel gives us is the, the idea of covenant headship. Covenant headship. And let me just uh, uh, tell you what that means. Uh, that's basically what we're talking about, is this relationship that a father has to his son that, uh, um, that even though Isaac didn't get to choose to be Abraham's son, he was Abraham's son, and Abraham's life was kind of placed on, onto Isaac. And actually, that doesn't just happen in bad ways. That happens in good ways, too, right? Um, uh, you look in verse 4 and 5. Uh, I will God says to Isaac, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give you your offspring, uh, all these lands. And in, the off and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice. Isaac got to receive the blessings because of, what, uh, because of Abraham's life. And there's this good side to our covenant relationship to our children. You know, I was just uh, talking to my dad yesterday. He was telling me a story about when he was, he was uh, in his 20s and he had gotten a promotion at some job. And his, and he, his dad, he, he says he, re he remembers his dad saying to him, you know, always remember that your title in your job really means nothing. It's your value that you bring to an organization. And he said, that bit of wisdom that my dad spoke to me when I was 24, it's shaped my whole life. It's, it's imprinted him. As he was telling me, I could see that he could visualize where they were sitting and visualize his dad telling him. It had this deep impression on him. And so there's this positive side to the way that a parent and a child works. Is, um, and, and what that means is we have all these children growing up in our church, and there's a new opportunity for them. They can, they, can have, they can grow up in, the, in a context of grace, hearing the promises of God, uh, seeing their parents in, in a Christian community, loving each other and serving God. They can see that. But even more than that, this idea of covenant headship is really the basic storyline of the Bible. Because the Bible really says that there's two covenant heads in the Bible. The first covenant head was Adam. And Adam was the first father of, 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 uh, of all humanity, and, he, uh, and Adam uh, disobeyed God. And because of Adam's disobedience, what happened to all of us? We all are sinners, and we all, we all die, and we all are sick, and, and we all are in rebellion against God because of that one man's act. But on the other side, what happens? God sent a second Adam. And the second Adam is Jesus, who uh, we also share in everything that he's done for us. So he's the second covenant head, sweetie girl. <laughs> Darling, sorry. Um, and so there is hope that in the same way that our parents, we inherit things from our parents that we didn't ask for, that we didn't deserve, that we didn't do anything to deserve, we get the same thing from Jesus. Is that he do, does things for us that he shares with us and he shares with us his inheritance that we don't do anything to deserve. And there's hope in that is that the new life that God has given us is that, um, is that we have a new father and he's shaping us. And this is the last bit of hope that I, I want to just uh, uh, say that I think this passage gives us is that God can use 
hopelessly lost sinners like us. God can use us. Because here's Isaac, who is, is uh, lying to this king, deceiving this king. And yet look at what happens at the end of this, in the, in the end of this story in verse 26. When Abimelech went uh, to him from Gerar to, uh, with Ahuzath, his uh, advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And here's Isaac, who has been deceiving this king, and then all of a sudden, the king has seen how sinful Isaac's life is. And yet he's seen, but the Lord's promises were on you. And I see how the Lord's blessed you. And I see how the, works, the Lord's worked despite your sin. And that's really what our church is. We are a community of sinners where God's grace has shown that he's really with us. And when people see that, it, it, the point is not for, for them to think we're great people, but for them to see the glory of God. And it is as God gives his promises to us in the midst of our generational sin, he see, we see that his promises indeed are stronger, and that gives him glory. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for this passage. And uh, we pray that your word would enlighten our minds to understand our own lives. And we pray that you would make your promises tangible to us through this church, to show us that you indeed are with us, that you will bless us, that you are our Father, that you have washed us, that you have set us free from sin. Show that to us, so that to us in our, in our relationships, in our church, in our marriages, in our families, that you may be glorified and that people may see our lives and our community and say God is indeed with them. And we ask this in Christ's name. time we'll uh, receive the offering and uh, uh, the verse for our offering comes from Nehemiah 10 which says we also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree we will not neglect the house of our God let's pray together our Lord we give this offering to you as we see the many promises that you've laid on us, the many things that you've done for us, your promises to bless us, that if we seek first the kingdom, uh, you will give all that uh, we have need of to us. And so um, we just uh, uh, give our lives to you, and as we give this offering to you, it is a token of us giving our hearts to you, that you would lead our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name.